0: Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We preach responsibly, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. Even when someone comes, and Frank here, or someone else comes, we ask him if he, would, if he would speak on the passage that is before him. Sometimes people say no, but uh, <laughs> most of the time they just you know go along with the program. And sometimes, one of the great reasons for it sometimes you speak on passages that are difficult, not the easiest passages. You know, it's easy to skip over, you know, you can speak on John three sixteen. you know, every Sunday and no one will have a problem with that, you know, but sometimes you go through the Bible and look at Ephesians. You know, everybody pretty much loves the book of Ephesians, but there are some difficult passages in the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to do that a little bit today. We're going to look at some of this the passages that are here and some of it is difficult but it's good to do that and uh maybe that's your practice here uh maybe when i come you just kind of throw it to the wind and so forth uh, but i hope that you go through the scriptures because it's a very very important thing it's interesting when you come to this passage and i want to give you a brief outline uh, of the book of ephesians the Book of Ephesians is broken up into two major sections Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are primarily doctrinal sections, but not entirely doctrinal. There's practical things in in those chapters, but those are chapters, and the key word, we use a key word uh, for those three chapters is seated. We find over and over and again the word that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, especially chapters 1, but all through those chapters, it's what Christ has done for us, which we cannot do for ourselves. It's not practical aspect, really. We are redeemed through his blood. Something he does, we cannot do it for ourselves. We are adopted. Something he does that we cannot do for ourselves. Christ died for us with something he does that we cannot do for ourselves. And over and over again, we have this great truth, the in the, the indwelling Spirit of God after or when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, last part of chapter one, verse 13 of chapter one, what Christ does, what the Trinity really does, what the Father does, what the Son does, what the, the Holy Spirit does, which we cannot do for ourselves. And so all through chapters one, two, and three, it's all what Christ does, and what we cannot do ourselves ourselves. And then after we come to faith, and after we come into this living relationship of what Christ does for us, that we can do or for ourselves, Mm -hmm. it's a practical section. We have chapters 4, chapters 5, and chapter 6. In chapter 4, and the the main word we will say in chapter 4, 5, and 6 is the word walk. Walk in love. Walk not like the other Gentiles walked. Walk in truth. Walk, we have this word walk about in, in chapter four about three or four times, and chapter five is mentioned as well. Is the practical side we are walking as believers <clears throat> now? What's very important, I think, uh, biblically and through the inspiration of Holy Scripture, what if that was reversed? What if you had the practical first, then all the challenge of what you have to do you got to do, 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 do this, and what Christ has done comes later. Well, I think Christianity would be more legalistic. All things we have to do. But it's in the proper order. What he has done for us and as an outflow of what he has done for us, we live in the power of that. And we can't do it otherwise. We can't live uh, the Christian life outside of the power we have of the indwelling Holy Spirit and what Christ has done for us. That we are saved. We walk in a newness of life because we are saved through the work that Christ does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Now, when we come to the second half, um, I'll give you a little bit of an outline of the second half, then we'll dive into our section here. The second half is broken down into a couple of areas. Chapter 4, 1 through 16, is the unity of the church. But then when we come to chapter 4, verse 17, All the way to chapter 5, verse 18. It's the purity of the church. It's a major session. The purity of the church. Living a holy life, walking not as a Gentile's walk. Over and over again, we have this great emphasis on living a holy life. Sometimes we're not challenged enough. We're not exhorted enough. We don't have preaching enough the holiness, how important that is when we think about the church, how important that is to have a holy church. That's a very important thing. So that he takes chapter 4, verse 17, almost the entire chapter, a large section, to talk about the purity of the church. The section we're in, it begins from chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 18, down to chapter 6, verse 9. And there's the harmony of the church. And then From verse 10, if you were in Lakes Bible Chapel today, you would be hearing a message in chapter 10 through verse 24. And that's on the victory of the church. But we're in chapter in the harmony of the church, and we should ask the question, because as we get into this session about harmony, we have husbands and wives. We have fathers and children. We have masters and slaves. We have all these interpersonal relationships. And so you can ask yourself, well, what, how does that, how do those interpersonal, how does a husband and wife, how does a father and mother, how do children, how do those who are slaves who are, who are in the local church, how are those who are slave owners or business owners, why is he addressing them in the local church, what part do they have, why don't you just skip over all of them, that's too practical, that's too, too everyday earthly kind of relationships, how does that affect the local church? I think it affects the local church very, very, very much. If the family is not functioning properly, well, it's going to affect the local church. If elders, it says about elders, elders should rule their households well. Why would it say that? Why would it bring in the work of an elder praying and teaching and ministering and shepherding? Why does it say your household should rule your household well? Why do the way a father leads the family, why is that so important? Children, there's a whole section on children themselves. Why is it that so important? Because children in the local assembly, moms and dads and husbands and wives, and they're all in the home assembly. They're all in that local church and they all interact in the local church. And when they're interacting properly, it's a great blessing, I think outreach can take place in a tremendous way. A household a household outside of the local church, wherever it is meeting, is one of the greatest uh, lighthouses for the gospel than you can ever have. People in your neighborhood, people your children go to school with, uh, people that you know from the neighborhood, people you shop with or whatever you, you, you get to meet. When they come into your home, I think they see, you may not realize this, they see Christ. You might just see because you're there all the time. And when other Christians come in, it's just very normal. But when an unsaved person comes in to your home and sees things that are different. <laughs> we didn't have a television for a long time. First thing they would say, where is your television? Let's you get a television. Sometimes when I would go to an unsaved home, the television would be on full blast. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have a conversation. you come into a Christian home, it's quiet. It's calm. Children are relatively, for the most part, children are children, They're respectful of their parents. I was talking to him. We had kid's club last on, on Friday night. We had a lot of kids there, we had 40 kids there. And we had a new family coming. He was a believer and, uh, and so forth. And the son came out excited about something. He got quiet. And he knew that he couldn't interrupt, interrupt his father speaking to another adult. And he said, and the father said, and he spoke. You see certain order within a home. I know people who have come to, to, to become Christians because they saw the Christian home. They saw how the mother and father functioned. It is said that many Muslims, go to my website, I have an article there about Muslims, I read this article, I, I uh, use a, this as a source, but many Muslims come to faith when they see a Christian marriage. And they are in the neighborhood and they come into a home, that's a Christian home. a Christian marriage, they come in, they see they've got their rules of what they should do. But they see how a Christian home operates very different than a Muslim home operates. And one of the things they see is love between the husband and the wife and a interpersonal relationship that gives her greater value and greater voice. I lived in in Belgium. I lived in a town, had a coal mine, and we had a large portion of Muslim Turks who worked in the coal mine. And you could see how women were treated they weren't treated the way Christian Christian families treated their wives. And so the home is a very important thing. And so it's brought in as a very important part in the harmony and the living out of the local church. we come to verse chapter, chapter 5. And uh, we didn't read this verse, but it's a key verse to our whole section. And we're going to come to it over and over again. And that is chapter 5. In verse 22, we have the word wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands in the Lord. And we find this word over and over again. Submit is all through chapter 5, the last part of chapter 5. We even have it in chapter 6. We have it that servants should be obedient or submit to their to their masters. And children should be obedient to their fathers and their mothers so this whole idea comes through but the key there's a number of key words that work together in this harmony this harmony in the family and this harmony and children and fathers and mothers and those who are owners those who are slaves those who are slave owners i want to give you a number of words we come across over and over again in this session and i think those words are very very key The first word is be filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 18. I don't think you can do any of these things, can you, without the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing mentioned. And maybe it's the most important thing mentioned. It says in verse 18, Be not drunk with wine, which is excess, but be ye continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled and yield to it. And let the power of the Holy Spirit work in your lives and it's interesting to me, what follows from there is these interpersonal relationships. It's not out preaching the gospel, it's not doing pioneer work out somewhere, it's not this call to mission work, but right afterwards, maybe it's the hardest thing in the Christian life, it's the family life. It's relationships between husbands and wives and children and owners and masters, and all these interpersonal relationships. And so he says, "Be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the key words, submission. Now this word submission in verse 22 that we read, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read some Greek helpful books. Notice some things about this word. This word is hupotasso. Hupotasso, it's a military term. It means to be under the rank of someone else submit but the, the verb the verb structure some of the, some of the, 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 the aspects about this verb is very important. This verb is in the middle voice, which means that the wife voluntarily it's not the husband says you obey me and she just submits. She voluntarily, willingly from the heart, submits. She desires to do that. Now, some commentators make this point. It says that she should voluntarily submit. But it doesn't say of her like it does of children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't say of the wife, obey your wife. Obey your husband. Or doesn't say later on about masters and children how they should do that. It doesn't say that. It says they should willingly submit. Now, how does that take place? I think there's a number of these different words we have. And one of the words is in verse 21. As Christians, a general overall statement. Christians, older Christians, younger Christians. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Well, there's the, there's the relationship that a husband, in a certain sense, submits himself to his wife, in a general Christian sense. And a wife, in a general Christian sense, submits herself to her husband as Christians. And then they come into the marriage relationship. And in that marriage relationship, we read a little bit later, husbands love your wives. We come a little bit later and we're told and we're added to that command about loving your wife. In what way do we do that? We do it in our own conception. We do it in our own way that we thinking of No, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then we're told further the selflessness of what that love should be like. Like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then it says children obey your fathers and your mothers and it says servants are to obey. But when you have love and you have the spirit of God and we have mutual submission, you have things functioning in the proper way, a wife willingly submits herself It does mean that a husband is willing to listen to her husband, and a husband is willingly listening to his wife. I don't think I ever made a decision without listening to my wife. Maybe a long time. We talked a long time. My wife grew up in Pennsylvania. She was very close to her family. Had a wonderful father, wonderful mother, and a sister. Married a couple of years, and I felt the Lord calling me to come to Florida, 1130 miles away. We prayed about it and talked about it, but she, through a lot of conversation and talking and prayer, she agreed. It became her desire. She submitted. And that became her will and her desire to do that. But there's conversation back and forth. No, no great decision was ever made. It's not that we had a, a men's meeting a couple of years ago, and one of the men who was new to us, very new, we just have to be there, I'm not sure how it, how it will happen, but 18 men there, he said something like this. He said, I tell my wife what to do, and she has to do it. And the thing, 17 other men said, No, that. <laughs> he was jumped on all over. <laughs> said, That's not the way it works. I don't know how, how how things were at his home, but that's he got the wrong idea from reading chapter 5 of Ephesians. But we come to the last part, the part that was read, verses 30, 31, 32, and 33, here's a summary. Summary of what was said in those verses. All these things are true. We have the love of a husband for the wife. We have the respect of a wife for her husband. We have uh, the submission of a wife for her husband, we have the submission of a husband for the wife. One of the reasons Christ does this is because we're members one of each other. One of the reasons Christ does all this for us because we are part of his body. He goes on to say one of the reasons the husband loves his wife in that way and the wife loves her husband and submits and respects her in that way is because they're one flesh one flesh. So it says in verse 31, it says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, and they shall be one flesh. And then again, it's mentioned a little bit later in verse 33. And it says, I speak about a great mystery of Christ and the church, this relationship that Christ has with the church. And then it speaks again as a summary statement in verse 33. Nevertheless, every one of you, in particular, every man, must love his wife as himself and the wife should respect her husband. I think one of the great needs that a man has is respect. Maybe we're not all alike, but I don't think a, a husband likes an embarrassing story at home as a joke told in front of the whole church. I don't think likes that. I don't think a woman likes that either. But a man likes to be respected. Don't like to be made fun of by ladies from the chapel. Um, you know, we had, a, just a, we had a, a ladies Bible study at our chapel. We she stopped it because it became a grape session of women about their husbands. Okay. That was the only reason we stopped it. There was other reasons, too. But that shouldn't be. It really should not be. Husband, desires respect of their husbands okay. and uh, of, of their wives and a wives. Wives should it, should respect her husband. Husbands should love their wives. But notice this word, one flesh. When you lose a spouse, we heard this morning about losing a spouse. Losing a spouse. Why is it so painful? Because you're one flesh. You know, take your body. You know, I'm, I'm one flesh. What part do I cut off? That's the, 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 the least painful. I cut up my arm, cut up my finger. I even cut my finger, and a paper cut is very painful. (laughs) What part do you cut off? How do you cut your, how, how do you divide it? So when you lose a part of that one flesh, it's painful. It lasts a long time. Even if you're older and you expected that person to die after two or three years of cancer, it's still painful. My sister died when she was 54, and my mother—it's not quite the same one flesh—but my mother says she'll never get over it. She so said, "That's not that's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to die before my daughter dies." But when you're one flesh, and a husband dies, a wife dies, because you're one flesh—it's very hard. When you get divorced, very painful. Usually, it's very, very painful. Why? Because you're one flesh. Years ago, I. Um, <laughs> I was involved in The Christian Fellowship, and there was a book, a very small little book, uh, that a lot of us were reading, and I, I began to read it. And uh, I'll never forget there's one little part of the book. I forget everything else in the book, but I remember this one little part. The book was by Walter Trobisch, And uh, he said, he said, one flesh is like this. You take two pieces of construction <coughs> paper. You've got to go back to your, your kindergarten class. You know, when you were in you took some construction paper, you take that white paste and you'd smear it all over the construction paper, you put it together, you put it in a book, and you come back the next day, it's dried. He said, now try to separate, evenly separate those two pieces of paper. You can't, right? He said parts of the one would stick on the other, and parts of the other would stick on the other page. You can't evenly divide it. You're one flesh. And he says in this passage, that is the essence of a husband and a wife. So he says this harmony is so very important in the local church. When that functions well, and many of those family units function well, the whole assembly functions well. So he says it's very, very important. But then he moves on to chapter 6. Now what's interesting in all Scripture, but especially in Ephesians. It's interesting that this letter would come from the Apostle Paul. It's probably a circular letter, but primarily was firstly written to the church at Ephesus. It would be read, and as he's reading, you have the doctrinal side of it, and then you come to the practical side, and then you come to chapter 5 and chapter 6. And as you come to those sections, he's reading it publicly, with an eye to all the different groups within the local church. So he's reading it, and the wives are there. They hear an address to them. The husbands are there, and they hear an address to them. The slaves, later on in this letter, they're there, and they hear part of it addressed to them. And children are there, and he they hear it addressed to them. Now, what's very important about that, and we see this in verse 1, we spoke about wives and husbands, but now we come to chapter 6, verse 1. As he's reading it, he says, now, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but he'll say, now I want to address something concerning the children. And the children would be there. Now, it was a very different meeting than we have now. There was no Sunday school. There was no nursery. Uh, There's no refreshment time, I don't think. There's no coffee, no donuts. I kind of like the way you have it. But they were all there, right? Every group was there. The children were there. I want to say there's something very important about having children in the meetings of the local assembly. Uh, Don't come to me after and say, Dave, you're opposed to Sunday school. No, I'm not opposed to Sunday school. I think it's wonderful and we should have it, but we should have a lot of meetings. We should have other meetings where children are present. I think one of the most important meetings where children should be present, we have a nursery at Land Lakes Bible Chapel. Well, you might have one here. As is the Lord's Supper, that is crucial that they're present. I can remember, you know, our kids when we brought them. When they were real little, they had little things that we these little plastic containers of Cheerios, <laughs> to keep them occupied, and then they would draw on little index cards and things, and they matured and matured. And they would be occupied a little bit, so they weren't too noisy. But then I got up to speak. Well, that all went by the wayside, you know, the, the Cheerios and the card or whatever they had. Their eyes were on they were looking. What's he going to say? What's he doing? Why is he standing up? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Listen. Now very interestingly, years go by. And we were a very small assembly. We may have had only 15 people, some Sundays, 12 people, a breaking grid. But at a very young age, my son Alan, who's actually in town now, and I'll see you later tonight, he'll get up and start speaking. Why do you do that? Why did he do it? I think partly he did it because he saw me. He saw men. and identified with that. He felt that was right. And I think he knew the Lord. And I think he was baptized. He was only 12 years old. He got up, and I think the first thing he read was Isaiah 53 somewhere. And then he would sit down. He wouldn't pray. He wouldn't say anything else. But then he came to me one day, and he said, he said, what do I say? What do I say after I read something from the Bible? So I said to him, I said, just say, Lord Jesus, I love you this morning. And say amen. he did that. But then he began to say things. And I noticed what he said. He said things that I I had said in the past. I had said those things. And I had probably said them years before, some of them. And now he was saying that, you know, certain phrases I would use. I'm thinking, wow, well, where, where did that come from? That sounds like me. That sounds like what I said. was listening the whole time. And I do believe, too, and I do say this, if a husband doesn't get up at the breaking of the bread, your children won't get up, your son won't get up. If you're not someone to get up and worship, I'm not saying every Sunday. If you don't do it in some basis. Now, there's always exceptions. But if you don't get up very much, your son won't get up very much. And I look at some families where the husband never gets up and the sons never get up. So he says in this passage, he's addressing sons or children. And he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then it says this, verse 2. You think that'd be enough? Obey your parents in the Lord. You think that covers it. That's a really strong statement, and that should cover it. The word to obey is hupo kuduo, which means to hear. To be under the hearing of someone. They are saying things, and you are doing it. Under the hearing. But then this word, honor. I looked, looked up in a couple of different places. And uh, one I liked. It said this. Honor, uh, to value as precious. I like that. Honor, something, is to value as precious. It says, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. First half of the Ten Commandments are all God work. Second half of the Second Commandments are all man word. And this is the first one in the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, Honor your father and your mother. I'm going to set the father aside. It's very important on your father, but I'm going to talk about the mother. Children should always honor their mother. Your father, your grandfather. It was tough being a grandfather in your children's home. If you're there, and you hear disrespect to that child's mother, you find a way. I'm not sure how you can do it, but find a way to address that. In our home, if Alan, Laura, or Sarah, and they weren't always angels, they weren't always the best kids that I've ever, you know, you might think, yeah, well, these are preachers, children, there. They're different, they're just the same as anybody else. Just as bad as anybody else, just as good as anybody else. But if I heard Alan talking back to my my wife, his mother, I addressed that. She would never do that, never do that. Your mother does everything you could imagine for you and you should not ever speak to her in that tone Speak in those words, and I think today they respect my their mother very, very much. It says here, honor. You go to the store. I remember with our kids going to a store. You hear a child somewhere at Target or Walmart (laughs) saying, "I hate you. You're so stupid." And the mother's standing there and doesn't say anything. I don't know what happens when they get home. And we get in the car. get all the kids in their seats. You know what they say? They say, Dad, if I ever said that, you would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I would never say that. That's right. can't say that. If they did say it, when they got back in the car, it would be a different story. But notice as we go on a little bit further. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. And you fathers... I'm reading from the King James translation. It says, provoke not your children to wrath. Uh, Maybe the NIV, it may be a number of other translations. It says, do not exasperate your children. Do not discipline them, treat them, interact with them in such a way that you are exasperating. They are at their last end because of how you are treating them. And I've seen fathers overly harsh, overly, uh, whatever the word may be, so much so. I'm not sure how those kids turned out uh, after a period of time. Don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to wrath. But notice what it says about the fathers. It says fathers don't do this. Don't exasperate. Don't provoke them to wrath. But fathers have a certain responsibility. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, I'm glad that, it was not part of the verse, but I'm glad that verse 29 was read. Because it says, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. his flesh." speaking of the wife. The word here for nurture isn't the same word for nourish. It's a very different word. In fact, if you go to different Bible translations, sometimes the word "discipline" is used. Sometimes the word is the word "pelia," which is child rearing or child training. <coughs> but most usually it's the word "discipline," nurturing discipline. You know, there's a there's a kind of a, kind of a pretty broad broad distinction between those two things. Nurture has this very nice way of thinking, you know, just put your arm around him and, you know, and you kind of encourage him. But here, it's discipline. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up. There's a role the father has in bringing up a child. It's not 100% the role of the, of the wife, of the mother. In North America, I think a lot of fathers believe it's the 100% role of the mother. He comes home, he brings the money, he eats the dinner, he goes into his room and watches the news or whatever. Not involved. Now, I know that's not true about that Claremont Bible Fellowship and a lot of other evangelical churches, but in large, that's, that's gaining traction. The mother does everything. Now, the father has very little role. But here in the Bible, it says fathers bring them up in the nurture and ambition of the Lord. It's interesting to me go back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and turn to it, uh, verse 13 Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas and they were horrible sons They did very. It did a lot of evil, the Lord would say and one day, there was judgment that came the Lord comes to the prophet and says to, to Eli why have you not restrain your sons. Why have you not done it, Eli? Why have you not restrained your sons? I'm sure there's a mother in the picture somewhere. Maybe she could have restrained and it says, You are responsible. Why haven't you restrained your sons? I think primarily the father is responsible in the discipline aspect of the family. Maybe some followers feel it difficult, but I think it's his role. There's another passage. It's in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6 or 7. I think it's verse 6. It's about David. And uh, David was getting older, and uh, his son Adonijah, was still a lot, David was still a lot Adonijah creates a a uh, gathering of different important people, and you want to become the king after David. David's still alive. And the, the prophet Nathan had revealed to David that it would be Solomon who would be the king, not Adonijah, who was fourth born. Solomon was tenth born, but God revealed that Solomon would be the king. Well, the prophet comes and says this about David. This is King James. I'm going to give a little translation of this after I quote the King James. James says this, David never said that Adonijah should not do this thing or another. A translation. David never said no to Adonijah. He never corrected him his whole life. Not occasionally. David never corrected him. Then speaking about his wife, I said, David, you never corrected him. It's the role of the father. Now I notice, at a store sometimes, but even at home, the mother will try to correct the children. She'll raise her voice sometimes. She'll repeat herself. Okay, my store mom, slam the door, yell back. But I noticed this. When the father comes into the room, it all changes. Doesn't have to say anything. You could even just say this. This also changes everything. Wait until your father gets home. That changes everything. If my mother told me, wait till your father gets home, I stopped doing what I was doing. I didn't always get spanked, but I didn't want my father involved. A father, I want to give you a little David Dunlap, John Reary 101. Um, I think the father should be doing the discipline. And I I think the wife should be doing the nurturing, the loving, the caring, the involvement in the children's lives in that way. That's how they were built. That's how that's, that's their role, I think. Part of the father's role is all those things as well. They bring up the children. But I think they're best at discipline. I think God built it that way. A father's voice is deeper. All he has to say is, Alan, Sarah. I mean, they stop doing what they're doing. It's the voice of the father, it's the authority of the father. And he just raises his voice a little bit. Everything is. And then sometimes there's going to be discipline, sometimes there's going to be spending. If you don't believe in spending, I don't know your view on that. all that. I won't go mm-hmm. into real detail. But I'll tell you this. A father and mother, most of the father, get involved in the discipline and the correction of children up to age six. It's much easier the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. If you don't do discipline up to age six, it's hell on earth in your household. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen households like that. I've seen Christian households like that. And I've seen others that almost never, for us, I don't think I ever disciplined my kids after age six. Now, I used to think I was really hard on those kids. I really spanked them a lot. I grew really hard and yelled at them and spanked them and all that. I think they deserved it. I mean, they, they did things that were wrong. I mean, I just didn't do it because I I wanted to do it. So I felt guilty about it. So one day at dinner time, they weren't that old. They were 11 or 12. So I said, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, do you think when you were younger that I spanked you a lot or I disciplined you a lot? They said, no, Daddy, you didn't do it hardly at all. (laughs) Now, why did they say that? I've thought about this over the years. Afraid to get (laughs) another (laughs) spanking. No, the reason (laughs) reason is they knew they were—they knew they'd done wrong, and they knew that I was doing it in love, and they knew they deserved it, and they knew I cared about them. Somehow, I believe this. Somehow, when it's done in love, and done in care, and done with a relationship that's involved in their lives. God miraculously takes all that memory of that and takes it away. Somehow it's gone. You remember it, but they don't remember it. They don't remember it. Now, I want to uh, conclude very quickly with five, five instructions to fathers about discipline. I know there's not that many fathers here. The children are grown in many other cases. But anyway, I'll just share a little bit of this. The discipline in the family is the father's responsibility, primarily. He should be under control. He should never discipline his children, never yell at his children when he's uh, got strong feelings. His temper is a lot out of control. Keep your temper in check. Remember, children are children. I don't think you can discipline children when a child doesn't know that it's wrong. Children will do foolish things. When Ellen was little, we lived in a house, had a gravel driveway. I think up north, they've been there very much. They've got these little, uh, well, stones, slate stones, gravel driveway. And Alan used to wear these overalls. had all kinds of pockets all over the place. you would take the gravel, put it in this pocket, and put it in that pocket, put it in this pocket, put it in that pocket, everywhere. Every pocket, and then on the bumper of my car, he would have piles of gravel um, lined up like six, seven days. Many as he could put on the bumper. So one day, he was very little. One day, he went for his nap. His crib, <coughs> and whatever age he was, and he started crying, he was crying, crying, crying. And he went, wow, what happened? What's going on?" We go in there. He's got a mouth full of gravel, <laughs> and he's crying. He's held the gravel in his mouth. I'll just say that story, because kids do foolish things, right? They do, you don't spank him for that. You don't spank him for putting gravel in his mouth. You take it out. You take the gravel out. One time he put his mouth over the gasoline can for well, the warm and has that spout. One time he put his mouth on the spout. You don't spank him for that. And the girls and stuff, too. So it's not just that just like Alan and all, the, all, the, all those kind of things, but remember the children should have boundaries. They should learn their boundaries. And should never discipline a child until he knows his boundaries. And they sometimes innately know that. They know what their boundaries are, but they're pushing the boundaries. Talk to a young father at our chapel and say, you know, so so he's pushing he's pushing more and more. He knows what's wrong, he wants to push, push, push. Know their boundaries. And when they know those boundaries, and you've told them, and I used to say to them, I would say, Alan, Moore. sorry, did you hear what I said? And look at me, and I say, say yes, daddy. You understood. So later on, when they do it again, they can't say, oh, I don't remember you ever said that. You never told me that. You, you've heard that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I remember that. You said yes, daddy, yesterday, you remember that? Know their boundaries, and don't be unpredictable don't be inconsistent. One day you spank them for whatever the thing is, or yell at them, or send them to the room, the next day they can do the exact same thing, or well, three days later, and nothing happens. And then two days later, and you get disciplined again for the same thing, and then a week later, they don't. And then they do, and then they don't, and they do, and they don't. And they're confused. They don't know what they should be doing. What a great passage. The interrelationships between a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, children, slave owners. We didn't get into that aspect. But how important is it in the life of the assembly when the family is operating the proper way? It's going to have a positive effect in the local, local assembly. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Father, your instructions your doctrinal instructions, your practical instructions. And, Father, may we seek, we, we do seek, to live and guide and and uh, serve you as believers, to see the Lord work the lives of unsaved ones, live and work on those who are saved, build up weak believers, strengthen stronger believers. And so we pray all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.